Hello and welcome to this discussion with Dr. Benedict Beckeld. We're very pleased to have you today on our show. And uh, Dr. Benedict Beckeld has a PhD in classical philology and uh, philosophy from the University of Heidelberg. He has written articles in magazines like Quillette, The American Conservative, City Journal, and The, Fe and the Federalist. Lately, uh, Dr. Benedict Beckeld published a book called Ecophobia, Western Self-Contempt, Ecophobia and the Decline of Western Civilizations. And this book has been, uh, I, I must say, I really enjoyed that book. And many people enjoyed it. And in Woke Watch Canada, you will see that it is part of the Forbidden Library. So if you uh, go on the Substack for what Woke Watch Canada, you will see uh, that it has been recognized as a major book of the later years, especially with respect to talking about the anti-woke anti stuff and uh, a diagnosis of cultural, let's say, diseases or cultural disintegration. Is that a fair way of putting it? Or do you think I'm... Uh, no, I think that is a fair way of putting it. It's, Excellent. Uh, yeah. Right. So let me just say that the book has been praised by uh, Sir Roger's, Roger Scruton, who said, a convincingly and clearly, clearly written survey of a phenomenon that we all need to understand if we are to face the future with any confidence. This is high praise from Sir Roger. And Victor Davis Hansen has written, a timely, astute, and now much needed historical, social, economic, and psychological analysis of why Western societies are not just self-critical, but ultimately can become self-loathing. From the Greeks' warnings that with material progress comes moral regress, to the contemporary French postmodernist perversion of language, Benedict Beckel both warns and shows that hating what made you free, secure, and prosperous is not merely decadent, but also suicidal. Um, for those who are interested in following uh, Dr. Benedict Beckel, you can find him on Twitter and on YouTube with accounts that have your name, Benedict Beckel. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Um, uh, some time ago, uh, I think roughly two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we released a symposium uh, video on ecophobia. Uh, it was Symposium 15, wh where we talked with uh, Carl about uh, Western self-contempt. And we used your book as a major springboard for discussion there. Uh, I think today we should focus more on the book, and it's good to have the author who wrote it and ask you questions about it. So. One thing, uh, I must say that this was a very dense book and I really enjoyed that because it was completely unlike the books I read when I was in my analytic philosophy days some months ago, for years. And I want to say that it was refreshing because it seemed to me that in this book you talked about Western civilization and not just Western civilization, but you you talked about, let's say, a whole culture and cultural issues instead of focusing on very minute details, on a very small asterisk of a paragraph of an argument that has been written. So to me, that was a breath of fresh air because in the academia I was used to and be a member of, and I was a member of, we operated completely differently. We would be expected to read, for instance, three, 400 papers per year that were all about the one topic. And if it wasn't just that, and if we did not do that, someone else would 
the other person would be published and uh, we would lose the position. So it seems to me that you're offering something that is needed and something that is more, uh, that is approximating what true philosophy is supposed to be about. Well, thank you. That's, uh, yeah, that's a high compliment. Um, you. Your description of um, your academic experience mirrors mine exactly. Um, indeed, it's, and this is actually part of the reason why it was difficult to get it published, because as you say, we are expected to focus on the very minute. Yes. Um, and uh, and so there is a, an almost inherent resistance to this sort of, to this kind of project in academia, where you have to make some sweeping generalizations topic requires, uh, the topic almost requires sweeping generalizations to some extent. I mean, I go into detail as well, of course, but um, but we uh, we are encouraged or discouraged rather to do such things because uh, academic specialists, of course, always want to point out all the little exceptions and so on. Uh, and the exceptions can be important, but they preclude us from also considering the larger picture. So that's what I try to do in the book. Yeah. Right. So that was good and i wanted to ask you whether in the university of heidelberg there was a there was something that pushed you pushed you towards developing a more broader perspective because the thing is that to my mind there is a sort of distinction between analytic and continental philosophy departments mm -hmm. i don't think that necessarily the theme there is no overlap between the themes i think that there is but it seems to me that the the departments in academia operate very much under the spirit of that distinction and they're very frequent and members of them especially the, the let's say the bureaucratic members of them they either identify as members of let's say the analytic school and they shun continental stuff or vice versa so uh, in the department i was it was very analytic philosophy and uh, i remember where for instance i was saying that well you, the way that academia is structured, you cannot get an, an Aristotle. You cannot right. get, for instance, a Bernard Williams. If, you, if all the focus is on throwing small stones, you, you cannot basically uh, be led into a position where people cultivate that holistic, let's say, perspective that seems to me to be associated with philosophers uh, or, and, and cultural critics uh, that at least of note. Mm -hmm. And I was saying that this is not the way to go forward. The, the Aristotle of our times is going to try to be, to lift a heavy boulder all at once. It's yes. going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect, but it's not going to be definitely not going to be the minute, uh, analytic way. So I wanted to ask you if you think that in the, what was your experience in the university of Heidelberg and whether there was, uh, the same focus on details or there was sort of a push to developing a broader perspective uh no not really um i mean i overall i was reasonably happy with my time in heidelberg but there is definitely um there is definitely as you say the the uh, focus on minutia and uh, in fact my big my big problem with the philosophy department in heidelberg was what that was that but i think that's true of a lot of philosophy departments around the world was that it was not really a department of philosophy but a department of doxography yeah that is to say it's all just a fight about what kant said or what hegel said there's no discussion about whether what they're saying is actually true one just fights about the opinions that already exist and and the philosophers nowadays sort of fight over the scraps of philosophy that already exist and argue about what somebody actually meant but there is no 
there is no effort to actually continue to philosophize beyond Kant or Hegel or whomever it may be. Yes. Um, and so there, there's no, there's no uh, drive to tackle the big questions. And so that's always been intellectually stifling. And, and what you said, I mean, I say also in the book myself, so what you say is music to my ears, namely that uh, an Aristotle or a Montaigne or somebody like that is impossible today in the university, um, basically. Uh, they, they cannot come from the training that is provided in the universities. And so if such a person... Um, is to be able to do his work, he must really uh, do it on his own um, without uh, without encouragement from the academic establishment. And that was certainly uh, my case. So uh, what the the sort of research projects that I was doing academically um, had nothing to do with the subject of this book, really. Uh, maybe a little bit peripherally, but uh, but this was basically just an entirely independent project. Okay, that's good. So what you said about doxography, it seems to me that what is different about between well, the difference between those who occupy an academic position and those who want to take the extra step and engage in cultural criticism and basically say something of value for now in her times is that in academic positions things are all, almost always phrased in a conditional terms if we accept this then we then this follows. If we accept that, then the other thing follows. Except when it comes to bureaucracy, then there is no conditional, then everyone is guilty from the very beginning. But the thing is that it seems to me that when you write a book like that, you step outside this merely hypothetical realm of operation and you take a stance on things that happen around you. And this is not something that is uh, well received by people both who agree, especially within an institution, and those who disagree with the direction towards which you want to, uh, to direct your thought. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that, for instance, in academia, tell me if that was your experience, the people who agreed with me were even worse than the ones who didn't. Because they felt that, well, if this person agrees with us, this person is going to get published and we're not going to seem to be making a contribution. This person, we're fishing from the same pond. So it mm. was a catch-22. And it seems to me that what you are, from what you have said, that it was sort of a catch-22 for you as well when you published the book, because it, it must have been a very difficult book to publish. Yes. Uh, was it, do you want to say a bit about, uh, was it, I'm sure it wasn't well received because academic presses right now aren't very fond of uh, messages like the ones you have on the book. Is that an accurate? Yes, that is accurate. Um, I didn't, uh, my, um, my experience to go to your first point wasn't maybe so much that uh, people who agreed with, me, agreed with me were even worse, but they certainly weren't better anyway, I can say. Okay. Sometimes I would get uh, messages of private support from fellow academics who said, well, you know, we agree with what you're doing. Um, and I would usually tell them, well, if you're not willing to state it publicly, then it doesn't really mean anything to me because it doesn't help in any way. Um, you, we have to show that there are maybe not a lot of us, but at least some of us within academia who think a particular way or who have these opinions or want to do lar engage in larger projects. And if we state it publicly, then we make it easier for each other. Um, so private messages of support are, are pretty pointless. Uh, but in terms of the uh, yeah, in terms of the publishing process. Um, I, it was difficult, as you can imagine. Most um, most uh, academic presses would just reject it uh, out of hand when they saw, for example, that 
Roger Scruton had said something positive about it, uh, because of course that was since he passed away, I believe, in 2020. So I had I got his um, his blurb, his support by sending him a uh, uh, an earlier draft in manuscript form uh, to get his uh, view and and his endorsement. Um, and so I used that, of course, uh, uh, his endorsement as part of the pitch. And of course, the moment people see the name Roger Scruton, they right away say, "Well, that's not for us." Um, and <clears throat> yeah, which which is uh, sorry, did you want to? No, 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 no. And so, um, and so that was part of it, of course. Uh, and part of it is simply people can tell right away that if you have published something in Quillette or in the American Conservative or whatever it may be, then of course uh, you couldn't possibly have anything of value to say. Um, I did go through a peer review process at a different academic press first before I got to Cornell. And the anonymous peer reviews that I got back uh, were, one of them was all right, but but the other one basically called me a fascist. Um, and of course, they're a little too savvy to... Uh, to use that precise word, but but you could read between the lines is that that's what the person was saying, and so there was no there was no attempt to engage with the arguments. They just basically said that okay, this is this is garbage, um, and um, and so then I was lucky. I, I kept searching, then I finally came to Cornell, where um, the um, uh, where I was lucky because the uh, the acquisitions editor for philosophy at Cornell happened to be a more open minded person. Doesn't necessarily mean she agreed with everything I had to say, but she was more open-minded and and was willing to take on the project. But even with Cornell, I've had great difficulty um, because, uh, as as I mentioned, they um, previously, um, for example, when I referred your discussion with Carl Benjamin uh, earlier about the book, and I told them for publicity purposes that you uh, that the two of you had said some positive things about the book, um, which would have would have been a great thing because the Lotus Eaters, of course, you have a pretty high profile and and you're well known. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of flattery there, but it happens to be true. Um, um, I told them that for publicity purposes, so that they can appear on Amazon and things like that, so people can see. Oh, okay, they've the Lotus Eaters and Carl Benjamin. They've said something good about these about this book, so it might be interesting to buy. They refused to publish to publicize that because they felt that Carl Benjamin was too extreme. Um, and um, I tried to reason with them. Um, talking now about the the marketing department, right? That's separate, of course, from the acquisitions department. The acquisitions department had accepted the book in the first place, but then the marketing department, who's supposed to who's supposed to publicize it, they thought that, no, that was too extreme. We can't do that, even though it means fewer sales. Um, and so this is one example of, of the sort of difficulty that I've had to deal with, uh, not just with the publishing process, but also with the publicizing process afterwards. And I'm sure they didn't Ex explain what they meant by that. They just threw that word yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. yeah, hiding behind bureaucratic niceties, basically, and saying that, well, you know, we have to uh, watch our brand and so on, and uh, this, uh, you know, it's not going to reflect well on us and so on. But it's it's their decision what they want to what what they want to publicize. But but um, yeah, but yeah, they they would never. And that's similar to to the rejections I got from a lot of philosophy presses. They're too they're too savvy to say right out basically that well, you know. Uh, we are, we're on the left and we don't like this sort of thing. So they'll, they'll, hide, they'll hide behind academic and bureaucratic niceties. And uh, I may add, they will pretend to be in favor of free exchange of ideas. Of course, absolutely, at the same time. So, so we, we get used to this sort of thing in academia. Right. So uh, let me ask you, what is the purpose of the book and what is the method that you use there? Because it seems to me that uh, many people have misunderstood the method and uh, you have some video, a video where you t respond to critics on YouTube, which yes. I watched and I really enjoyed. Uh, but uh, do you want to share with uh, with us what is the purpose and the method that you use? 
Yeah, so um, the purpose, it wasn't so deliberate in the sense that I set out to establish this sort of project. It sort of just came to me. Um, I describe it actually a little bit in the beginning of the book, but it is basically just I was confronted by ochophobia as part yeah. of my daily life so often, both both privately and, and professionally, academically. Um, and so at some point, I just sort of threw up my arms and said, well, this is ridiculous. I, I have to write about this. Um, so um, so uh, the purpose was simply just to sort of get out all of these thoughts that had been brewing inside. I had this moment where where the whole idea of the book sort of just came to me in, in, a, in a bit of a flash of a moment. And so I didn't really, uh, it wasn't a deliberate purpose. It just sort of came to me and I had to write it down. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of the method, um, I realized that, uh, and again, uh, this is also uh, part of the part of the same answer that it wasn't a purpose because I didn't really do any academic research as such for the book, because it wasn't that I sat down and said, okay, I want to write about ochophobia and history, and then I started doing research about it. Rather, the whole thing, the whole idea of the book, sort of coalesced just from a lifetime of reading. Um, uh, I'm sure you know what I mean. One, uh, those of us who are it arose spontaneously. It's not exactly. something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. If you've read good books and 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 philosophy all of your life, then at some point this pattern just sort of emerged in my mind, and so I decided to sit down and write it out. Um, and um, and so the method was simply: I figured, okay, well, I can make it more convincing to to uh, to um, to the modern day if they understand that this is not some aberrant. Um, phenomenon that just fell out of the sky. Yes, but rather that we can explain it by, in fact, looking at the fact and realizing that it has a history. Okay, uh, and so, yeah. um, so that was basically establishing the history and then dissecting it philosophically. Yeah. Right. So let us move to the concept of ecophobia. Um, how exactly should we understand the concept, and how should we not understand it? And I'm I'm asking this because very frequently it seems to me that when people introduce a concept. Uh, there are many interpretations of it, and there there are better and worse interpretations. So, how should we understand it, and how we should definitely not understand it as? Um, well, oikophobia, the basic understanding of it uh, should simply be that it is that uh, cultural self-hate that it develops um, as a civilization has reached maturity, as Western civilization has reached maturity, certainly, um, and that it is the opposite of xenophobia, that is to say, as opposed to despising or disliking or fearing foreigners, yeah. one despises or dislikes or fears one's own culture, uh, one's own countrymen, sometimes also. Um, that's the basic understanding of how we should uh, understand ochophobia and therefore understand also that it is more of a knee-jerk reaction rather than a sort of well-thought-out process. Now, there are, of course, certain oikophobes who, once they have oikophobia, develop fairly um, elaborate systems of thought to to defend uh, or to justify their orcophobic feelings. But the orcophobia itself is just sort of there as a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, it develops as a distaste of one's own culture. Um, in terms of how not to understand it, I think that's the other side of the coin. One should not understand it as a very well-developed philosophy, because it's not. Because we see uh, that orcophobia developed in history also among people who were not philosophers, who just sort of had this sort of knee-jerk reaction. Uh, and one sees it even more today than in the past, that orcophobia has become such a mass phenomenon that it's really not to be understood, uh, at least not primarily, as a philosophical movement, but rather as a sort of... Um, um, knee-jerk reaction. Knee-jerk reaction, yeah. uh, subculture of self-hate, yeah. Okay, and so 
is it fair to say that in an Aristotelian fashion, we could say that ecophobia and xenophobia are the two extremes and yes. we sort of have to find the middle way or mm -hmm. a middle ground? Okay. Right, exactly. Yeah, they, they are the two vices um, and, uh, and the Aristotelian uh, golden mean is... Uh, is that which is in between the two yeah absolutely okay so one thing to ask about it because it still it seems to me that what you're describing is the book is a is a sort of theory where it doesn't seem to me that you're appealing to necessities uh, to appealing to necessary patterns but it seems to me that you're appealing to strong tendencies and this mm -hmm. is the way also i like to think about historical events and tendencies that do you th when does ecophobia arise? It seems to me that in the book, you say that there is a trajectory in the history of human civilizations. And first we have the development of xenophobia and then the development of ecophobia. And it is, it is sort of a natural process. Is, yes. is that uh, an accurate uh, description? Can you, this, do you want to add more to that and expand on yeah. it? Yeah, so it's it does develop as once a society has, um, and you touched a little bit uh, upon this uh, in your conversation with Carl, um, that um, essentially ochophobia is what arises once a civilization has eliminated exterior enemies, has achieved a level of uh, security and uh, wealth and leisure so that a leisure class can develop that starts focusing on the own culture's vices, uh, as opposed to focusing on the vices of the enemy. When the enemy, the exterior enemy, is still very present, of course, one has to focus on them. Um, once they recede into the background, uh, it becomes possible to focus on one's own shortcomings. And so, in that sense, uh, ochophobia is a very natural, um, quote-unquote, natural thing that arises. When you talk about um, determinism and history and so on. That's actually why I write the epilogue in the uh, at the end of the book to sort of address that issue. There are two, I guess you said you wanted to get to that maybe a little later. Let, but let's leave that for the end if you want, but, but by, by all means, finish your... Part yeah, your basically, I was going to say there, there are two levels of, there are basically two levels of discourse when it comes to this particular issue. One can have the more stringently deterministic level of discourse, which is to say, if there's no free will, then of course, things just happen as they happen. But one has to be careful with that because that can bleed into the other level of discourse, um, the sort of non-technical level of discourse where people then think that, well, if everything, uh, if there's no free will, then of course it doesn't matter what I do. And then uh, then we sort of give up in trying to improve our own societies uh, or, or, or to struggle against ochophobia. And of course, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, and so when we talk about tendencies, and I also criticize Marx, right, in, in other contexts for always using the word gazettes, right, law, when it comes to history. Uh, whereas we really should be speaking of tendencies, because when we speak of tendencies, we can at least, even if it's difficult, we can at least realize that it's at least possible for us to have a positive influence on the societies in which we live and to try to affect things in a good direction. Right. I think that this is important to stress and reemphasize, because when we talk about tendencies, we are much less prone to fall into what we could say ideological ways of thinking. Now, I know that in your book, you say that uh, right now ideology has become a dirty word. And, yes. but uh, I'll use it in that sense, in the dirty, in the right. dirty one. So right. it, it seems to me that the point is that when people start talking about necessities, especially in history, they seem to be buying into a mentality, or at least they frequently seem to buy into a mentality where if the facts opposed theory so worse for the facts because they mm -hmm. try so much to to make 
the, the theory work that they really become averse to empirical facts. Right. And even there, I think there have been some historians, especially I think it's E.H. Carr. I don't remember, I'm, I'm not certain, but I think it's E.H. Carr who is very skeptical of the use of, of empirical facts. But let us, let us, um, let us uh, not talk about that. So when you talk about tendencies, it seems to me to be healthy because there is a sort of healthy empiricist attitude, a sort of healthy doubt in, with respect to being happy to be proven wrong or being at least accept a, uh, or at least accepting the possibility that we may be wrong instead of just saying okay that's it i have my set of generalizations they all explain everything everyone who speaks otherwise is let's say uh, is ignorant or bad and uh, we either coerce them or shoot them that this can have there can be tyrannical tendencies when we start talking about necessities that, that is why I think that many people embrace the more empirical attitude, especially in the Anglosphere of the 20th century. Now, back to eco, the concept of ecophobia. It seems to me to involve the idea that the ecophobia is, has the attitude of rejecting uh, national loyalties. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yes, definitely. So the que the main question here is how do we understand national loyalties? Because I, I want to say the, f the following. To my mind, it seems sort of obvious, but there is a question with respect to how the concept of ecophobia can be used in dialogue. Because I was uh, talking about uh, this with uh, a friend of mine who is very, who is very left-wing uh, in, in Greece. And he says, but there is no such thing as ecophobia. So of course there is. You are the main ecophobe, the major ecophobe I know. And he was saying, no, no, I, I am in favor of uh, the nations, just that we understand national loyalties and national interests differently. And to my mind, the way he understands it is completely mistaken. Um, but so that is the question. How do we use the concept of ecophobia in public discussion? Is it a concept that when we use it, people who are, let's say, the ecophobes we have in mind, will accept it? Or will they say, no, you have a bad idea of what national loyalties are, you have a bad and distorted idea of national interest, and uh, so we are not against our culture, we are against some features of our culture and in favor of others. So what would you say about this? How should we... How, how should we react? Is it a concept that can be used only among, let's say, uh, a particular group, or can it be used for pu public discussion, for the purposes of public discussion uh, more? Yeah, the, it's your re the reaction of your friend is interesting because I've, I've had similar reactions like that myself among my circle of acquaintances. People will say there's no such thing as ocophobia, similarly to how people will say there's no such thing as political correctness. And the reason they say that is because they have so internalized Yes. their own particular ochophobia and their own sense of political correctness, that they're sort of assuming that that is the the sort of default position that a person has. And so that so that's not phobic in any way. That's not politically correctness, because that's just sort of the baseline of how it's right to be. And it's anything that's different from that, that's an aberration. Yeah. Uh, and so and that's another reason of discussing the historical process so that so that one can see that it's actually the ochophobia that is in some sense, historically at least, an aberration. Um, but so how to um how to understand ochophobia and how to use it in in discourse one has to so one has to explain to people 
that uh, it is an aberration. It is a decadence in the sense, uh, in the sense that I use the word uh, in the book, in the sense that it is a falling away or a falling off from what what from what used to be the norm in the society. Uh, and yes. so, in that sense, it is an aberration, whether one agrees with it or not. Um, and uh, it is the 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 sense of national loyalty is there are some people who say that um you know nationalism and the idea of national loyalty and so on it's a modern phenomenon it's true to a limited extent in terms of some of the manifestations of nationalism that we have today that the, that they can be understood as a as a modern phenomenon but the idea of belonging to a broader community um is certainly ancient um there's nothing particularly modern about that um Certain, you know, certain ancient societies may not have had um, national anthems and flags the way we have them, uh, and so because of the lack of those exterior manifestations of nationalism, people tend to think of nationalism as something purely modern. But the idea of being unified around a common language and religion and so on, and um, and and a history to some extent as well, it depends on what ancient society we're talking about. Yes, that as well. That is that is nothing particularly modern. That is a certainly ancient idea, and I think that's. Uh, we have to have this sort of, if we want to properly understand what okophobia is, we have to have this sort of broader understanding of nationalism. That is to say, not just the singing of a national anthem with a hand on the heart and so on, uh, but in fact, the the rallying of a particular linguistic community around a set of accepted norms, traditions, um, religious practices, and so on. Um, and that's uh, that's as, as ancient as can be. Um, and if we understand uh, nationalism in that sense, then we see that orcophobia is the aberration away from that. It's the belittling of those things. Okay, uh, that seems to me a lot to, to reflect uh, Alasdair McIntyre's view of a community. Am I am I wrong? Uh, no, there there's something to that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, the thing is, with respect to the instrumentalization of ecophobia, it seems to me that this kind of this sentiment is somehow being instrumentalized and what do i mean by that and tell me if you think i'm i'm onto something here that if we def we can define ecophobia as a sort of knee jerk reaction as an attitude that is against let's say the one's culture and one's civilization and and it's a sort of extreme attitude it's the knee jerk opposition to anything that is in favor of, let's say, one's culture. It seems to me that this is really dangerous in multicultural societies and in contemporary Western societies. And it is sort of instrumentalized by those who play into identity politics to a ridiculous extent. And what do I mean by that? It seems to me that a feature of identity politics involves a sort of several steps plan. And one involves the division of the population or of a, let's say, significant portion of the population into groups that are oppressed by a, um, the indigenous population. Usually it's the male indigenous, the male native population. And it seems to me that at the moment we have people in Western societies who are playing identity politics in the following way. They try to obfuscate the idea that the groups that they name majority minority groups and the groups that they claim to represent and the groups groups that they claim to want to emancipate they, they are not consistent they don't have compatible ideas of what constitutes respectful coexistence so for instance i'll just going to m mention a particular let's say um 
conflict that we see nowadays, we have many people who are talking in favor of women's rights and other people who talk in favor of trans rights. And very frequently, there is a major conflict there. And we regularly find people, I think it's in, on both sides of the Atlantic, we regularly find people who try to say that there is no such conflict. This conflict is only created, it's artificial. Where, and they are trying to portray a sort of uh, the, ma the male native population, especially, not just male, but usually it's the male native population. They try to demonize it because the only way to have, let's say, different groups together that are incompatible is to invent a common enemy. So the question is, is ecophobia something that is sort of brainwashed in us nowadays as a means of a, a pacifying the the majority of the population or let's say the the male native population of western countries into accepting an agenda that uh, harms things like national interests and national loyalties yeah, or patriotism if we don't have to focus on the idea of a nation let's talk about patriotism if if you would like do you think that this is a way in which ecophobia can be sort of manufactured and it can be um, communicated by what we would call the malicious ecophobes, the ones who are purposeful, purposefully ecophobes, who yes. are to and try to indoctrinate the next generation, let's say, with these ideas. Of course, and you see that all the time. I mean, it's there is a common, and this is also something I address in the book. There is a common um, effort. Um, on the ecophobic left, especially to sort of portray everything that they don't like, everything um, such as patriotism and nationalism and so on, as these sort of constructs that don't really uh, have any real existence in reality. And of course, the response to that, um, philosophically speaking, is that if those are constructs, and indeed they may be to some extent, then what you're doing, of course, is also a construct. Uh, and so you cannot reject something simply because it's a construct, because it's something that exists purely in our minds. Um, if we reject things on that basis, we'd have to reject everything, um, uh, philosophically speaking. Uh, and so um, that's not um, that's not a sufficient rejection of of either orcophobia or or non orcophobia. Um, um, but um, it's certainly something that um, that is uh, being done very deliberately. Um, and I mean, one sees this. I mean, I, I grew up in Sweden. Um, my most of my school years were spent in Sweden, and uh, of course. At the time, I didn't think much of it, but looking back at, at my childhood now as an adult, of course, I see that that sort of indoctrination took place all the time. Now, there's nothing in particularly wrong, I, which is an important point to make, um, about indoctrination of school children in and of itself, because indoctrination to some extent must always take place. Um, there is no such thing, and this is again, people who attack um, my point of view as a construct, this is what they don't understand, namely that everything we do is a construct. There's no such thing as, quote unquote, pure unvarnished truth, right? When we present something to school children or to, or to university students, for that matter, we always must present it through an interpretative lens, right? Because there's no such thing as a, quote unquote, pure truth um, independently of human communication. Uh, and so when we communicate something of uh, a quote unquote truth to somebody else, it always takes place through an interpretative lens. Um, and so um, certainly in, in the um, in the socio-humane sciences. Um, and so the idea in and of itself that we must pre present a certain set of ideas to school children as preferable to another set of ideas, that's unremarkable. I, th I think that's something that must okay, always yeah. take place. Yeah. 
Um, but this also means the flip side of the coin is that when we present a more orcophobic set of ideas to the school children, that is that is not the sort of baseline of truth. That is a construct. That is an interpretation of the truth, an interpretation of history, and so on, and an interpretation that, in my opinion, is very noxious and and very bad uh, for society and for the school children because they get a very warped, I think, even more warped view of history than they would otherwise have. Um, and so, I think uh, most certainly, it's it's uh, it's subtle sometimes. But it's a very real indoctrination. I remember some of the songs that we, that I sang as a school child in Sweden. And uh, looking back, to, looking back at the lyrics now, I realize, oh, that was pure socialist propaganda. Of course it was. Um, and uh, and the same goes for uh, for ochophobia and and uh, and much else. Yeah. Right. I have a. I, I just had an idea. Whether we should talk about the dimensions in which ecophobia and xenophobia fear, appear, because it seems to me that right now the people who actively push in favor of fostering ecophobia in the majority of the population, at least the native population of Western countries, in a sense, they are xenophobes. What do I mean by that? It, it seems to me that xenophobia is frequently an, a notion that occurs when we are talking about people of different cultures. When we have culture A and culture B, and we have, and it, it concerns how members of culture A feel about members of culture B. But when we have people within the culture, when we have groups, it seems to me that we could also think of uh, this in terms of groups. So would you say that at the moment, we could say something like the following, that th the people who are pushing forward the identity politics agenda are winning ground, or that at least they feel they're winning ground, as they feel that they're winning ground, they are so much focused on the, the enemy and manufacturing the enemy that they are xenophobes, not in the sense of people of different cultures, people of different groups. So would you say that in that respect, ecopho cultural ecophobes are inter internal cultural xenophobes in the sense right. that they're afraid, not afraid, they're contemptuous of other people of their own culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of, of uh, looking at it. Um, uh, certainly, I mean, why not? It's um, it's. I think it's a good uh, it's a good um, uh, interpretive uh, turn of the word. Maneuver, I think. Uh, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Maneuver, exactly. Uh, um, it's um, it's true that um, group identity, of course. And this is, I, I don't uh, look at the word xenophobia in this way, as you just did, uh, but in the book, uh, I do talk about how the sort of neo-tribalism occurs. Yeah. You have tribal, a more holistic tribalism early on in the society when the entire society is sort of one tribe as against other societies, other tribes, uh, quote unquote. Um, but in the neo-tribalism, we have smaller tribelets within the larger society. Um, and so if a, uh, if a member of... Um, of a, of a society is a xenophobe against the members of another society, then indeed, as you say, one could extend that and say that, well, if if tribalism is a sort of xenophobia, then yes, uh, then within particular tribelets of one, of one larger society, a sort of um, mini xenophobia or xenophobia on a lower level, if you will, uh, can develop toward other groups, toward other tribelets of that society. That's certainly true. And one sees, of course, that the hostility that exists between smaller groups of the same society, certainly here in the United States, but I know the same to be true in certain uh, European countries, although it's right now for some, for a variety of reasons, it's it's a little more intense here in the United States. 
Um, uh, but um, one sees that the hatred that these groups have for each other is much greater uh, than the hatred that any of them have uh, for foreigners, which is not to say that it would be better and they would compensate for things if they also started hating foreigners, but it does, but it is to say that um, something has gone terribly wrong when societies, when members of the same society who share the same the same history and the same language and so on, when they start hating each other so much, um, one understands that something has definitely gone awry. And, and so, as you say, that could be understood as a sort of xenophobia, yeah. Right. So let's talk a bit about the manifestations of ecophobia. It seems to me that in your book, you say that there are two major manifestations of ecophobia. Yes. It's rel moral relativism and positivism. And you mm -hmm. devote a chapter respectively for each. Um, yes. Do you want to say a bit more about how you understand uh, moral relativism as a sort of manifestation of ecophobia and that explain how also positivism is a form of of ecophobia yeah so it's it's mostly about and and this was uh i i think one area in uh, in your discussion with carl uh, which yeah. i watched with great interest and which i really enjoyed oh, um you. where there, yeah absolutely where, where there was maybe a little bit of um of a um uh, disagreement um so relativism is not um, relativism doesn't lead to orcophobia, just like positivism doesn't lead to orcophobia, but as you say, it's an expression of uh, orcophobia. Um, and historically speaking, that, and that's why I talk about relativism first um, in, the, uh, in the book, historically speaking, relativism appears as a vehicle, you might say, of orcophobia before um, positivism uh, serves that function. Um, and if you look at it historically, the first appearances of orcophobia uh, in ancient Athens uh, tend to go hand in hand with relativist philosophies uh, that developed uh, at the time in late uh, late fifth century and, and early fourth uh, century BC. Yeah. Um, and and so um, those um, so uh, orcophobia does not have to be relativistic, but one can see that it's easy for relativism and orcophobia to go hand in hand. Um, yes. Okay. Because, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you if you're going to um, reject your own culture and look down at your own traditions, an easy way of doing that, of course, is to say that, uh, well, what we believe is true is not really, has no claim to universality, ha there's nothing special about it, what these other people think is just as valid, if not better. Um, and so relativism becomes that hook upon which okophobia can, can sort of attach itself. Um, and then positivism appears later on, uh, but yeah, I would say it's a, it's a manifestation of orcophobia and uh, and and uh, one and one that doesn't require a lot of intellectual effort. I think that's another important point to make. Um, there are, of course, um, certain relativist philosophers who are, who are very intellectually rigorous in their relativism. Um, so I'm not saying it's not that it's impossible to be a relativist and intellectually rigorous at the same time. But for most people, and when we're talking about ecophobia as a mass phenomenon, of course, we're talking about most people, relativism does not require a lot of intellectual effort. Uh, instead of having to defend to figure out why this particular set of ideas is better than that, it's quite easy to just say, well, it's all equal. It's just a matter of what you think. Um, and so that's why relativism is an easy temptation into ecophobia. So one question here, because m maybe I use the concept in a more technical sense, but to my mind, Moral relativism isn't necessarily what you're describing because it is a sort of position that does involve th thought about what is right or wrong. So it's not, mm. it's not the, the kind of uh, relativism that you would say first year undergraduates have that, oh, who are you to say? 
It's from right. your perspective or it's from our perspective. So it seems to me that very frequently moral relativism is conflated with the attitude of tolerance. Now, they're compatible, but I don't think that they must be compatible because moral relativism seems to me to be a, we could say, a morally realist position, a position that does affirm what is morally right, that there exist, moral facts exist. But unlike objectivists, for instance, they would say that these facts are not up, out there for everyone, applying universally and necessarily everywhere. They are relative to particular culture. And someone who would say they are relative to a particular uh, person, that would be a moral subjectivist. So it seems to me that we can have uh, relativists who are not ecophobes in the sense that they say that, okay, what, I may not be objectively right in what I'm doing, but I am right and these are the customs of my country or my community and I will act accordingly. So, right. but but... To, to be fair, you did say that you don't think that they are one and the same. No, and and, and yeah. here is the distinction uh, I make be the, between moral and cultural relativism. Quite important. I recall you said you weren't quite happy with the distinction okay. uh, in the way I made it, but but basically, um, cultural relativism, um, uh, as I use it in the book, is precisely as you say, right? It does not have to entail um, any. For one can still have this position that okay, I understand that the morals that I have are contingent. Um, upon my culture, yeah. But yeah. within that framework, I think that this is best, and and that's and this other moral set is worse. Okay. Uh, so that's certainly not ecophobic. Uh, moral relativism, on the other hand, comes much closer to subjectivism, as you describe it, um, because w if you have moral relativism, um, then you're no longer saying that. Well, I accept this particular, I accept the cult, the the moral principles of my culture, even if I don't think they have universal application, um, but. If you, but if you have, but if you're a moral relativist as opposed to a cultural relativist, you're saying that no particular moral set or particular value has any meaning at all, uh, uh, regardless of culture. And so that comes, so that can be used overlappingly with subjectivism, and it is in some of the philosophical literature. This type of relativism and subjectivism are basically used interchangeably. It depends on the author, admittedly, um, okay. but. Uh, but so I use it in that sense. And so when you say that it's more like subjectivism, I agree, but it's uh, when it comes to moral relativism, that is pretty much the same as subjectivism as I use it. Um, but Fair cultural point. relativism, yeah. I agree. And yeah, and cultural relativism is is pretty much um, something in that sense, uh, when you describe it as a moral uh, as a morally realist position, um, it certainly can be. Um, and and that's not very happens to be not very far from from what I think myself. Um, but um, but yeah, so uh, one of them is more ecophobic than the other, which is why I'm at pains to point. Maybe I should have put it in the main text and not just in the footnote. But um, but uh, but that moral relativism is what I'm talking about, even though it might sound sometimes like cultural relativism. So I, I don't want to sound unfair because it seems to me that uh, the the point definitely applies to to Western cultures that are we would say a bit more tolerant than some other cultures because the seem it seems to me that what is particularly problematic about the kind of relativism that you are talking about and and we are talking about is the idea that we there is a lack of commitment to some moral values and frequently it comes with a sort of intellectual laziness because it is frequently associated with the idea that we shouldn't judge 
Right. So it it seems to me to be a, there seems to me to be an attitude there that is distinct from the doctrine, just like with ecophobia, where you said that right. there. Are, so yeah, we can, so it's a it's a fair point. Now, with, yeah, yeah, because yeah, because we're, we're talking about most the mass of most people, right? Not not academic philosophers, as you say, and and this sort of yeah. s- general sentiment that exists uh, in the populace at large is indeed or exactly yes. is more uh, in that direction. And we could still say that. Uh, there could be relativists in Western society whose customs involve a substantial amount of tolerance who would be tolerant to a, let's say, ridiculous extent. That that may be uh, an implication. Now, with respect to positivism, I was a bit uncertain the first time I read the chapter and I still, I'm still not confident that I understood exactly what you said, but tell me if I'm wrong. You mentioned Francis Bacon's um, Oceania. Yep. Uh, Atlantis. Atlantis, yeah, sorry. Is Oceania by Thomas More? Yes, I think so. Uh, So uh, you mentioned Francis Bacon and his uh, sort of utopian uh, uh, aspiration to use science into sort of reform society to such a radical extent where you could say that human sensibility would be so much reformed that there would be a utopia and there would be no, there would be zero problems anymore. Is this how the ecophobe is using positivism or or have I misunderstood it? No, that's pretty much it. And of course, one, and this is what I talk about then later in the book, is that that will come to conflict with relativism. And even though one will see the two exist side by side in the same person. Uh, but yes, that's essentially um, what positivism is. Now, they might not always um, express it in that way. Of course, uh, somewhat intellectually uh, savvier positivists will, of course, uh, not use the word utopia generally because that's a sort of discredited word for good reason. Um, but uh, but the sort of th- that general feeling they have it they have that feeling in their hearts if not um, if 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 not the thought in their brains that yes indeed uh, things can approach a more utopian state um, and and that invariably involves the erasure of whatever is special about us so that we can all meld into one large human uh, community. Yeah. So, um, question now. I'm. I'm. I don't get the impression that you think that ecophobia is the only problem that afflicts Western societies. Um, no. uh, that would be a bad interpretation and a very uncharitable one. But given the fact that it is a bad one, how big of a problem do you think it is, and how do you think we can react against it, if not solve it entirely? Because I think that. You do write in the book that this arises naturally once societies reach a particular level of affluence, that it does arise. So I'm I'm not talking about the ultimate triumph over evil. I'm talking about how to react against ecophobia and to what extent to to what extent does it is it a problem? Yeah, it's well the extent to which it's a problem is. Um could be a whole conversation in and of itself. I mean, it it weakens societies internally. Now, if all if all societies, if all nations in the world were reasonably benevolent Western liberal democracies, then ochophobia would probably not be such a big problem. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. because there are nations like Russia and China and so on, uh, North Korea, etc., the list is long. Um, because those things exist, when the West weakens itself internally, of course, that is bad for the world as a whole. 
Uh, and so for that reason, um, ochophobia is is bad, not just from a cultural point of view, in the sense that we uh, we reject our own history, we reject the artwork of, of our own traditions and so on, which is bad enough. Um, but it's also bad in the sense that, well, if we don't want to stand up anymore for what we believe because we've stopped believing those things, that, of course, leaves the room open on a geopolitical level uh, for um, nations that do still believe uh, in certain things but whose beliefs um, might be a bit more um, dangerous uh, than those that we have ourselves. Um, so, in terms of so, in terms of how bad orcophobia is, it can almost not be overstated how dangerous orcophobia can be uh, to a society. And nowadays, not so much maybe to ancient Athens, but now when the whole world is interconnected, it can certainly be very bad for the entire world. Um, in terms of what to do against it, um, I mean, the sort of conversation we're having right now is is sort of a thing that one needs to do um, and uh, sort of um, uh, alert people to the fact that this is an aberration, to alert people to the fact um, through historical education that this is not the normal state of affairs. Um, and of course, I mean, people know that um, the problem is that people, when people reject their history, they think that... Um, that the opposite of uh, um, orcophobia, that xenophobia and oppression and cruelty and slavery and all of those things um, were all that there was to the past. And of course, part of educational instruction is also to, uh, of historical instruction is also to make people understand that that's not the case. Um, but yeah, as as you could probably um, tell from the book, I am not particularly sanguine about, um, uh, about our progress on this front. Um, and this sort of cliched answer that, well, we just need more education and better education, that usually that won't really cut it because, um, because what kind of education? What kind of education, yeah. precisely? And generally, the problem is that the more educated people become, the more ochophobic they tend to become. Now, there, there is such a thing as being very, very educated. Yeah. Uh, in which case, that could be an antidote to orcophobia. But the thing is, that very high level of education, which only the fewest people have nowadays cannot be attained on a mass level through our educational institutions. And there and is, so, sorry. No, go ahead. No, there is a saying that uh, we have in Greece, I don't know exactly if it's going to be translated well, that half knowledge is worse than no knowledge at all. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah. that's very true. Because yeah. it breeds a kind of conceit. And it mm -hmm. seems to me that this kind of conceit is a really widespread attitude in civilizations who have reached, let's say, the zenith of their power. And it breeds a kind of exceptionalism, very yes. frequently, that is associated with uh, power and the projection of might in the geopolitical sphere. But it also breeds into a sort of really weird thing to look at, because it seems to me that when, we, when I hear ecophobes speak, they speak as if there other people have no agency. And other members of other cultures have no agency. So they would, they are so, it seems to me, they are so much preoccupied with winning the identity politics culture war within their own country or their respective countries that anything that happens anywhere in the world, they immediately portray as sort of a bad outcome of Western influence or a bad outcome of American influence, English influence, French influence, whatever. There's so much, and this seems to me to be exactly the problem with half knowledge, as you're yes. saying, or the yeah. increase of education, because, okay, we're not, when we're talking about increasing education, we don't uh, actually accept, we don't breed uh, the God's eye point of view to people. We just give them frequently more information. 
Right, and exactly. that, unless there is a sort of connection between all of what is being taught, uh, we're not really talking about education in the classical sense. We're talking about the reception That's of right. increasingly more information. So I wonder whether you would say that ecophobes are conceited and to what extent do they represent worse what they are detracting? Because it seems to me that very frequently ecophobes are way more conceited than the, the, the fellow members of, the, of their population as they decry the, the fellow members of the population to be. So they would frequently say, for instance, in let's say Western countries at the moment, you Western people, you don't have, you know, you, you, you're blind to your own class prejudice, you're blind to your prejudices, and you know, you're conceited because you're blind to your prejudices, yada, yada, yada. But they seem to be way more conceited in that mm -hmm. they literally cannot conceive of the idea of uh, the agency of other people, and we see it regularly on the on the news every day with the intensity of the spread and the ecophobic message, and the and the the ridiculousness of it. Would you say the, that uh, this is? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is, I have a, a ten point list in the book about why intellectuals are the ones who tend to be the most treasonous and the most ecophobic, um, and that is that conceitedness. Now, the thing is, the point about education. If one is truly, truly educated, if one is a genuine expert, um, that tends to, I mean, the old saying, which is true, that the more you know, the more you know how little you know. That's yeah. definitely true. And so if one is truly educated, if one is a person who, who spends one's entire life reading books uh, and, and, uh, and engages in a lifetime of study, then that can lead uh, to a certain... Uh, humility might be too strong a word, but a, a certain, um, a, a certain uh, one becomes full of awe. Uh, of yeah. the knowledge uh, of the past and the efforts, and one realizes how much there is, how little one knows, and how much greatness has been accomplished in the past. But that's a level of education that's unattainable for the vast majority of human beings. And and we have and we and also when we speak about educated people today, this is a point I've made elsewhere. Um, most educated people today would be a joke compared to educated people a hundred years ago. When we say somebody's educated today, they couldn't hold a candle. To somebody who was considered educated 100 years ago, certainly in the humane sciences, um, with some very few exceptions. Um, and so um, this sort of half education, as you say, um, one has learned enough to know that bad things happened in the past and to know that um, the history of one's nation isn't as glorious as maybe it's sometimes cracked up to be. Um, but one does not know enough to know that um, uh, to appreciate, one does not know enough to appreciate the accomplishments of the past, and one does not know enough to know that um, that we are a fallen species, that the sort of vices that we have in our past are common to all of humanity, right. so that there's no particular reason to reject just our civilization for those vices, then you'd have to reject all civilizations. Um, and so we have this, and this is another thing I also talk about in the book, this illusion of expertise. Uh, the democratization of knowledge through the internet and earlier through the printing press and so on leads common people who are not very educated to think that they're very educated. And you see this, of course, on social media. You can you can look at Twitter or Facebook for about two seconds and you and you see people talking with great earnestness about things of which they have not the slightest inkling. The one-eyed um, rules the blind. Yes, exactly, and yeah. and that leads to and that leads to this um, to this conceit, as you say, because one thinks one is educated and has the uh, the authority, uh, the intellectual authority, to reject one's own culture, um, and so that's why. But but we cannot go beyond on a mass level. We can't get beyond that level of education, and so that's why you know in, improving instruction in school and so on 
sure, it's a part of it, emphasizing the accomplishments of the past, the art of the past, and so on. Of course, those are all good things, but they're not. That's not going to be enough to really raise people uh, above that level of conceit and make them understand that uh, rejecting one's own culture uh, because of universal human vices um, is a fool's errand. Um, and so, uh, emphasizing th somewhat more parochial things, if you will, like family. Uh, tradition and so on, those are actually better ways uh, of combating orcophobia than simply uh, education, um, right. I would say. And uh, let me ask you the, the following question. Do you think, what do you think will, okay, <laughs> that's very broad, but what do you think will happen in the, the Western world in the next hundred years? Do you think that, for instance, problems such as the demographic problem are going to be the tombstone of the Western world? Or do you think that there is a way of mitigating the problems with it? And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because, for instance, to my mind, the demographic problem is a boogeyman. Uh, excuse me, I don't mean that it, is, uh, it doesn't exist. Right. I, I want to say that it is a scary being that has to okay. be contended with. Right. Uh, maybe that was the wrong expression. But no, it, I understand. It, it seems to me that we have rapidly declining birth rates. Right. Uh, in Greece, for instance, it's 1.34, yeah. where the replacement rate is about 2.1, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's incredibly ominous if someone cares about uh, his or her country. And uh, it seems to me that there, there is such a trend. And uh, I don't know if it was also Polybius, the historian who's, who mentioned that a sort of wealth also contributes to a sort of demographic problem because when people have uh, more time, more free time and more luxury, they tend to focus less on the family and more on themselves. So do you think that there is hope with respect to the Western world or do you think that the Western world will ultimately turn its back on the family for the pursuit of material prosperity? Because it seems to me that this is a very major conversation especially in the conservative side that many people are not having with respect to how boomer conservatives will talk to younger generation conservatives. And I really don't, uh, I don't know what the prospects of optimism are here. So what would you say about this? Do you think that ultimately, is that a contradiction in, the, in Western societies that they are so much geared on to the pursuit of material prosperity that it, this will end up tramping the family or not? Um, yeah, I hope you have another question after this because otherwise we'll have to end on a, on a rather sad note. <laughs> but yeah, the, I, uh, I have about uh, free will and moral yeah, right. responsibility. <laughs> okay. and, yeah. Right, right, okay. Um, yeah, no, so um, yeah, I'm not very sanguine here either. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the um, when I first came to this country, um, we actually uh, the United States had an above replacement birth rate, I believe, um, if I remember correctly. And I was shocked actually when I saw the most recent figures on that and saw how much it has declined in just um, a couple of decades. Um, and um, yeah, so but it's interesting to compare intra-Western societies in this regard, because then one can see what elements contribute to higher birth rates. So for example, in Israel, they have a much higher birth rate. We can still consider Israel a Western society. Um, in Israel, the birth rate is much higher than in Western Europe, and even than here in the United States. The United States is doing better than a lot of West European countries, uh, certainly like Greece and Italy, um, as, you, as you say. 
Um, but one can look at what is it that Israel has that we don't have. And of course, part of the answer to that is a, um, a somewhat more um, parochial culture. Now, there, Israel is largely a secular society, but there is still a stronger presence of religion. One, one sees it um, uh, present um, uh, both uh, uh, very profoundly and also even superficially uh, in Israel. And of course, they're surrounded by enemies. That helps as well. Now, of course, we don't wish to be surrounded by enemies. That's not an optimal solution. Um, uh, but we see what what the things are that help with the demographic problem. Um, and so the solution will probably be cyclical in the sense that um, things will continue to get worse before they get better. And after a while, things might get so bad that it will lead to real geopolitical problems. And that is the sort of thing that can relaunch a cycle and make things better again. And one sees um, parochial traditions, um, religious uh, ceremonies, um, emphasis on the family and so on, they come in moments, of course, uh, of, of, of difficulty. Uh, one sees right after 9-11, for example, here in the United States, church attendance shot up, right, suddenly. Yeah. Then, of course, it's, it's started to, to ebb away again. Uh, but one sees that when, when a society faces adversity, those things are strengthened. Now, of course, we don't, it's not ideal to solve the problem of ochophobia through some major con conflagration, of course, nobody wants that. Um, but those are the things that I think um, might um, help the West embrace its traditions again and to stave off the demographic decline. As things are right now, I don't really see um, much of a solution, uh, quite frankly, because uh, as you say, and, and Polybius is great on this, I mean, he, uh, about this uh, cycles of, of civilizations and so on, um, about I don't see much of a solution as things currently stand um, to the demographic problem. I think people will continue to have fewer children, uh, unfortunately. I think the only room for optimism here is to note that many demographic predictions have have been falsified. So yes. in the spirit of falsification and fallibilism, let's hope that they You're are right. going to well, be... Certainly in the opposite side of the coin, the coin, right? The Malthusian side, of course, where they think we're all going to explode with the people. Of course, that has been proven false time and again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's hope that the, the other side of the coin is false as well. Right. So let us uh, end with the following topic. Uh, talk a bit about free will and, and moral responsibility. Now, yes. the thing is, it seems to me that in the epilogue, you have a really good history of ideas of how the concept developed. And I was really happy when I saw Alexander of Ephrodisias being, being, uh, refer being referred to as a milestone in the development of the concept. Now, I must, I must say that I don't find the concept senseless. And, um, okay, I, I definitely understand that uh, you may find it. And to make uh, matters easy, I think that it ultimately boils down to several starting points that people take for granted. So for instance, if people take for granted the idea that every action needs to have a sufficient reason as to why it was performed rather than any other action, yes, then free will does, does make no sense. But I don't think that this is a sort of uh, thing that everyone should accept. But le let us uh, f focus oh, on... Yeah. But I, I agree with that. I, yeah. I don't think it's something that everyone should accept. And, and, okay. and when I write... I mean, I don't say it in the book because... I'm, ultimately, I'm not a politician. I'm a philosopher. So my job, as I see it anyway, is to simply tell the truth as close to the truth anyway as I'm able to get. Um, 
and not to tell people what is sort of useful or practical or convenient or sounds nice to hear. Okay. And so that's why I don't really make that point. But I agree with you that it's not something that most people should think. Yeah. Okay. I, I understand this, but I, I would uh, not be considering myself to be saying, for instance, that I'm telling people what they want to hear. If I tell them that, for instance, uh, I'm in favor of free will and the right. idea of moral okay. responsibility, because for many people, this is a really problematic thing to hear. Right, but that's uh, not. But those are two different things, right? Free yeah. will and moral responsibility, which is yeah. a distinction I, I make in the epilogue. But yeah, sure. No, I, I'm not saying that you are conflating them. Um, but let us focus on the cultural uh, issue, and uh, we could perhaps talk another time about the philosophical one. Uh, yeah. Let us focus on the cultural one, so the uh, the audience is a bit more uh, interested in it. So, I think that there is an issue with de denying free will. And uh, there is a sort of problem with moral responsibility if we do it. And mm -hmm. one thing is that it seems to me that one of the major problems, or at least cultural problems of Western society, is the, the sort of predominance, the intellectual orthodoxy in, let's say, intellectual circles of scientific reductionism. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that ever since uh, the 1600s, this kind of mechanistic view of the human mind and the of mechanistic view of human beings has become has been accepted as sort of you know obviously true mm -hmm. and uh, people have sort of come to accept it even implicitly and it seems to me that there's a big question of how to integrate morality into such a world, because there's, of course, Hume's famous isot distinction, isot gap. And the, there is a really good question that Hume raises that how is it from a world of physical facts that we can sort of derive normative properties? And it mm -hmm. seems to me that the more we, the more time goes by and the more our societies become mechanized and you could say that they are geared on this idea of efficiency, especially, we sort uh, the most people tend to accept at least implicitly this idea that we are machines. And of course, when intellectual, let's say, ideas become published, they don't instantly affect society. But people have started accepting, for instance, Freudian psychology as a sort of implicit truth. So it seems mm. to me that one of the major problems in Western society is that people implicitly think that morality is just a fiction we tell ourselves so we can just feel good about ourselves when we perform some actions. Um, also, it's a tool that we use to manipulate other people and that it's deep down, it's a mistake and it's a myth and deep down we are just meat machines. Mm. So it seems, it seems to me that this is a problematic paradigm and I wouldn't uh, embrace it. I'm not saying that you do, but I would, uh, I would like to say, uh, it seems to me that in order to affirm a position that requires and embraces moral responsibility, it seems to me that we need to think of ourselves in radically different ways than the ways uh, that are consistent with that kind of scientific reductionist orthodoxy. Yes. And I mean, as you say, we, when we speak of it culturally as opposed to philosophically, um, I think you're right. A purely philosophical, philosophical conversation would have me give a slightly different answer. But as you say, we can leave that maybe for another time. Okay. Uh, but 
Um, or we could do it now if you want. But um, the 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 thing is, um, the mechanistic explanation of the universe is is one is is I'm not ho actually hostile to the mechanistic explanation. However, on the and as you can see, I mean, I, I flatly deny the existence of free will in the epilogue. But the reason why ha one has to be careful about that is precisely the cultural reason, which is the one that you want to emphasize. Um, the problem is that you, people apply it unevenly. So okay. when people when people talk about morality as a construct and about uh, and that they're and, and that uh, and, and when people embrace the mechanistic explanation of the universe and of our actions and therefore liberate people from their moral responsibility, they apply that um, unevenly. Um, people aren't rigorous in their thinking, as you said before. Um, a lot of orcophobes take away agency from particular groups. And so in those particular cases, they uh, subscribe to the mechanistic version of the universe, but they don't do it in their own case. Um, yes. They only do it when it's politically convenient. Um, and so uh, it's true that that, that, that um, way of looking at the world has wrought certain damage, uh, but but not, not entirely because of the view itself, but because it's applied unevenly by political opportunists, um, I would say. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so w it seems to me that this is a pragmatic consideration yes. and not necessarily um, a consideration that speaks against moralizing because it seems to me that what where, where it boils down to moralizing and the attitude yes. of you, it seems to me that you are mentioning something like moral fanaticism, the kind right. of moral dogmatism that is extreme is uh, associated with intolerance and that uh, it leads people like ecophobes to mm. s to apply it selectively and they say no only those who are uh, to be demonized by my doctrine should mm. have moral responsibility right. and they are uniformly guilty mm -hmm. and uh, my people are uniformly good for instance and everything mm -hmm. that they do yes okay no I, I think that I do take issue with this and I do think that this is a very mistaken point to, to this is a very mistaken and corrosive attitude but i don't think that the attitude to this is to stop moralizing but moralizing right. in a different way do you absolutely. think absolutely no I, I absolutely i couldn't agree more and the thing is uh, even within the but even even within the mechanistic view of of the universe uh, but this is where a lot of people have difficulty wrapping their head around it but even within such a view, moralizing is is not obviated by such a thing, and this is something where the um, postmodernists go wrong. For example, um, if you say that everything is about power, uh, right? And it's also something I talk about in the book, and I remember Carl mentioned it a little bit in the yeah. uh, I think in the conversation with you as well. Um, if everything is about power or everything is mechanistic, that's fine, but that still doesn't mean that within that nexus of power and uh, and a mechanistic view of the, of the universe that everything is morally the same. Um, one can take that view of the world. And one can say that yes, ultimately, is everything is about power. And I think you made that point in the conversation. Nonetheless, certain uses of that power um, are better than others. Um, and and this maybe goes back a little bit to um, to cultural relativism that we talked about earlier. Even if we say that there is no moral set that has universal application or that exists on a sort of um, metaphysical level, nonetheless, one can say that in our in in our current reality as it is right now, uh, in this uh, in this place in the world and in this juncture of our history, this moral set is better than that. Okay. Um, and yeah. Now, and, and so I I don't think and so I don't I wouldn't say that um, 
the the mechanistic view of the of the universe and the lack of free will can certainly be abused to noxious ends, and we see that all the time. But I don't think that the view itself uh, leads to a sort of moral nihilism. Okay. Now, one question to focus a bit on that and on an implication. Now, obviously, we we said not obviously we said that we agree on the idea that the cure to moral fanaticism is not moral nihilism, but a sort of different moralizing attitude. So instead of, we, we should call out people, for instance, who apply their principles selectively and say that, well, this does not uh, withstand scrutiny. So it mm. seems to me that th this shows a good feature of, we could say, some Western societies that there is room for disagreement and there is room for ethical reflection and, and dissent. So the question is here, though, whether in treating each other as citizens who are, let's say, um, accountable to the force of reasons, we are treating each other as sort of beings with normative responsibilities. And would that imply a sort of presumption that we are free and morally responsible? No, from a strictly philosophical point of view, no. Okay. Uh, from a cultural point of view, yes. Um, we, it depends on how you use the word choice. So choice in the sense, cho we do have choice in the sense that we have we stand in front of X and Y and we do X. That's a choice. Um, but once you add the word free choice, then of course we have to realize, well, what is meant by free choice? Um, it's not uh, you, as as Hume himself would have said, well, he he's maybe he 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 waffles a bit on the question sometimes, but but basically, if you do X, it means that you could only have done X. Um, but again, most people would then say, well, so that means you're not responsible for doing X. But of course, the idea of moral responsibility existed long before the idea of free will existed. Um, and so um, we still are responsible for our actions, regardless of whether we were uh, metaphysically free to do them or not. But again, um, there's a reason also why I put this in the epilogue, because it's sort of just, it's a sort of additional philosophical consideration, uh, if you will, for those who are interested in this topic. Um, but it's not uh, it's not something that I think is very useful uh, for society at uh, as a whole um, uh, to to think of uh, to think of our choice and of our actions in that way. Okay, but uh, okay, so you do think that there is a problem pragmatically speaking if people start to think of themselves as not not having free will. Uh, that is a problem pragmatically speaking. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there is another feature with that. I, I don't think we should focus necessarily on free will, but it seems to me that this may have been a sort of Kantian influence in in philosophy that there is always an as if clause. We mm -hmm. need to view the world as if we are free. We need to view the world as if we are morally responsible. We need to view the world as if it it uh, you know it's necessitated. It seems mm -hmm. to me that this is precisely a kind of mentality that leads people into thinking that well basically we're we're just lying to ourselves mm -hmm. and deep down we think that implicitly we are lying to ourselves and the, for instance it may lead people into start thinking that maybe well when we are talking about morality and moral obligations we are basically engaging in a sort of myth making where we're trying to mm -hmm. basically manipulate each other would you say mm -hmm. that this is uh I don't, I mean, I, I think there's maybe some truth to that, but I, I think that's a maybe slightly uncharitable way of putting it. Um, okay. I, because, yeah, um, because I mean, I would say, 
because I, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to sort you know the white platonic lie, so to speak, or the platonic lie that uh, that we just tell people what we know is manifestly false, so that they'll behave properly. Um, because I mean, similarly, I talk about the value of religion uh, in society. I'm not a religious person myself in the slightest, um, but I talk about the importance of religion in society. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's the sort of you know we'll just tell people what they want to hear so that they'll so that they'll behave. Um, I think one can go beyond oneself and see the beauty of other traditions and also realize that they're, um, and I think it maybe philosophically comes out to pretty much the same thing, but I think it's a somewhat more charitable way of putting it, namely understanding that there are several valid ways of describing the world um, and that my way of describing the world has its validity, but so does um, a, a more religious worldview. Uh, it might not be one that I believe is literally true, but I can certainly believe that there is um uh, a dimension of truth to it. It depends on how literally you understand it. Um, but so I wouldn't, uh, people say sometimes that I'm being condescending toward religious people and so on, because I say that, well, it's, you know, you you people should believe that because it's better for, for society. It's better for all of us if you do. To which, of course, the answer is twofold. Um, first of all, it doesn't matter if it's condescending or not. Um, if it's the truth, it's the truth. And this goes back to what I said before. We're not politicians. We're philosophers. Uh, so we try to get at the, at the truth as best we can, regardless of what people will think of it. But number two, and maybe even more importantly, um, I don't think it's particularly condescending because it's not saying that there is no truth or, or no value to such a worldview. In fact, the people who are closest to me uh, on a personal level are all religious people. Um, and uh, and I see, I used to be religious myself, actually, then abandoned uh, faith uh, as a teenager. Um, but the the idea that, uh, and, and this is another thing, one, a lot of atheists, right, they have this very hostile view toward religion, uh, which is not at all, um, which is not at all what I think. And I think that uh, understanding that one can share the world, and, and this goes back to combating orcophobia, we can share our society with people who disagree with us, with people who feel differently and understand, and this makes us less orcophobic if we understand that their view, our, our fellow citizens, their view of looking at the world might be slightly different from our own, but we understand that it as well has beauty, it as well has meaning. Um, and uh, and if we understand that, we start to go beyond ourselves a little bit, then I think that's, I would say that's a better way of looking at it. Right. Thank you. So, um, would you like us to end with a sort of message you want to give to people who are really concerned about ecophobia and uh, whether you think that there is any silver lining? The silver lining is that uh, we should all engage, continue to engage in these conversations. And, um, and, and I'm happy to say that um, there is nowadays, uh, as you know, uh, you're a big part of it uh, over at the Lotus Eaters, there is an entire set of alternative media now, which did not exist 30, 40 years ago. And through all of these alternative media, uh, there is no longer a monopoly on the truth as there used to be. There are people who try to reinstate that monopoly, of course, um, but, uh, but they haven't been successful yet. And so I tell people continue to read, uh, continue to listen, to uh, to all different kinds of opinions, including, by the way, um, opinions of um, of oikophobes, I would say, uh, open yourself to uh, to all different to the full plethora of, of various ideas, and uh, and realize how lucky you are to live at this time and place uh, where you have so much beauty and goodness um, to uh, to learn from. Right, excellent. Thank you very much for this interview. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I hope you really enjoyed it. Goodbye.